0: Hey everybody. This is Danny and I'm back for an all new episode of the podcast. It's uh Christmas Eve as I record this and um hope everyone's having a good holiday. Hope everyone is able to relax a little bit and uh is staying safe, staying home. Uh you know, I think unfortunately especially where I'm recording here in the LA area, um We have just a surge of COVID cases right now. Uh, A lot of people are just not uh, following the the protocols. And uh, unfortunately, it's probably going to just get worse as people, you know, see other people for, for Christmas and do a lot of traveling. And even apparently the Burbank Airport is sort of a hot spot right now for COVID. So I would definitely urge you, if you're listening to this, please stay home, stay safe and help us get through this so that next year we can actually uh get a little bit back to normal um but yeah i mean i um have had the last couple days off from work which has been nice uh it was definitely a a long couple of weeks uh going into the break but it was nice to have some time off relax um and i'm looking forward to a couple more days uh, of christmas uh time uh days off so uh yeah it's sad i mean you know typically um i do the uh jewish christmas tradition of uh chinese food and movies um get together with with different people and and do that so i'll be doing kind of a a mini version of that this year but um it'll be it'll be sad not to be able to get a, a good group together like in years past um but uh in any case you know it's always nice to just have uh time to to be lazy and um you know stay nice and uh you know cozy indoors watch more movies watch more TV play those video games uh i mean again it's like thank god that we're quarantined in time where we have access to so much media because uh you know it definitely if you're if you're a giant nerd and you probably are if you're listening to this podcast you know, it could be worse. It could be worse. Um, so with that said, um, it's, it's been still an interesting time in the entertainment industry. Um, we do have a couple of big movies that are dropping tomorrow. Um, Wonder Woman 1984 is coming uh, to, to uh, HBO Max. And then Soul from Pixar is coming to Disney+. Plus. And those are two of the bigger movies of the year that are coming both directly to streaming at no extra charge. So, really interesting. Um, you know, I think it, it, if you see kind of out there in the press, uh, the Wonder Woman director Patty Jenkins is sort of, you know, she seems a little bit lukewarm on the whole HBO Max idea. Um, you know, she said something to the effect of if she does a Wonder Woman 3, she would only want to do it if she knew it would come out exclusively in theaters. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. I do think Warner Brothers, like I was saying last week, has you know some problems on their hands with talent and directors that are not super happy about the move to everything going direct to streaming. Um, now I see there's talk of Dune possibly, um, you know, having its its date changed and going uh, later to next year when it could potentially actually come out in theaters. So we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, you know, um, at the same time, certainly with the circumstances we're in, you know, this month and this week, I think it's nice to have some of these big movies to look forward to. Um, certainly here in California, no one's going to be going to theaters. No one can go to theater. So, um, it'll be nice to have wonder woman come out. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I was curious to, or, or interested to talk about was, uh, you know, I didn't touch on this last week, but there's a lot going on in the video game world with cyberpunk. Uh, and so this is, is just kind of fascinating to me. And I think a lot of people, because I think it's sort of indicative of just the video game industry as a whole is at kind of this inflection point where there there's clearly some major problems in terms of how the industry is, is working right now. And it just doesn't seem like things are going along at a sustainable pace. Um, You know, there's been a lot of discussion in the last several years about these video game studios that are just crafting these impossibly big and massive um, and ambitious games. And, you know, they're working on them for years and years. They're having their employees, you know, crunch in in the office and working just insane hours in order to get these games finished. And then even when they are finished, a lot of these games are coming out and just they're buggy. They require like patches on day one and then they're being worked on um, for, you know, months and months after they release in order just to kind of patch them up and get them into good shape. And as a result of that, we've seen some really high profile games in the last several years that have come out and been flops, which... um, you know, I mean, of course, the video game industry has always had a share of bombs and sort of disappointments. But when you think about the amount of time and money that has gone into um, some of these games, like the recent entries, for example, in the Mass Effect series and in the Fallout series and some other very high-profile games, uh, Avengers, that just came out this year, you know, that game clearly just had issues. And uh, you know, a big part of it is that there seems to be this weird pressure on game developers to create these games that are just something for everyone that have kind of an online multiplayer component that have uh, a single player campaign um, that have massive open worlds that have, you know, microtransactions and loot boxes, which is something that I don't think any player wants in their game, but something that, you know, the corporate overlords are sort of looking for because they think it helps them monetize the game beyond the initial, you know, price point of the game. And it's getting to a point where it's a little bit crazy. I mean, you know, I I think that's part of the reason that indie games have really been thriving over the last uh, several years, because at least with a lot of these indie games, you know, you pay a lower price for the game, you get a game that's meant to do one thing really well and to be good, a good game for what it is um, versus a lot of other games that have been coming out. These big triple a games, they're not focused. They're just trying to be like all things they're trying to for, for no real reason be these like massive hundred hour experiences or sort of ongoing experiences. And I don't think anyone really wants that other than a very small group of maybe like super hardcore gamers. But, you know, even as as I've been playing The Last of Us 2, for example, which I think is, a, is an incredible game. And I think that one of the reasons that Sony and Naughty Dog, um, the studio behind Last of Us, have had so much success is that Sony as a whole, I think, has had a better track record than a lot of others with creating just games that know what they are, that um even when they are these big ambitious games like Horizon Zero Dawn, you know, they feel just like they have a really solid narrative. They feel like they really know what they are um as a game. And Sony has been doing just good like single player games that have a beginning, middle, and end. Um and I think there's still a lot of people like me who want that kind of game. And, you know, I think Naughty Dog that does Last of Us and Uncharted, they have just a, you know, their storytelling and the way that they create games, you know, these are massive, massive projects, but they still feel focused and they still feel like, uh, they're guiding you through a story, which I think is a little bit of a lost art in some of these open world games. Now, even with that said, you know, Last of Us (laughs) 2, as I sort of approach the end of it, I feel like it could have easily been cut by maybe a third and been as effective of a, of a game and as a narrative. Um, a lot of these games are just too long. And it's funny because I say that as an adult who has less time to play games. But even when I was a kid, I mean, you know, a lot of the NES games and Super NES games that I grew up with were meant to be beaten over the course of you know a few days, or you know a few weeks, versus um, some of these games now, you know they last you a year. And I guess there's par- there's some people that are going to say, well, I'm paying sixty bucks for this game, I want it to last a year, but I kind of question that, and I say, do you really want it to last a year? I mean there's certain games like there's fighting games and sports games that you can just keep coming back to over the course of a long time and play competitively and, and things like that. Those you want to last for a long time, but something like the last of us Two, I mean, at the end of the day, you just want it to be a good narrative and there's not many narratives that consist that can sustain through, you know, uh, 50, 60 hours. Um, and so, I think the video game industry as a whole has to sort of take a breath and be like, who really is our audience here and what do they want? And are we serving them correctly? And especially in a world where you have a lot of, you know, millennials and, and, and even older who are now kind of adults with jobs and families and responsibilities. uh, If you're creating games for them, can you do it in a more, Focused way that doesn't require, you know, like a year's time commitment just to get through one of these games, and then so getting back to Cyberpunk, this sort of even went a step further where it's so crazy. I mean, this game, you know, was was first announced years ago. I think I want to say like twenty thirteen, um, and you know, people were really excited. It was obviously the next game from CD Projekt Red that had done The Witcher, uh, three and had very quickly become the sort of revered uh, game studio and and justifiably so. But, um, you know, with cyberpunk, it clearly, I mean, it was just taking forever to, to to complete. And you sort of look at the game that they were making, and you can see why because I don't I haven't played the game, so I'll just put that out there up front. But just from what I've seen of it, I mean, it feels like, They just like their goal with this game was just to create a massive game. And that was almost a goal in and of itself. Um, because when I look at the game, to be honest, I was getting a little bit less excited the more I heard about it because it didn't feel like there was a clear a clearly defined experience there. It just felt like we've created this massive world. There's a bunch of stuff you can do in the game. Um, and that's sort of what it is versus for me i still think about like well what is the gameplay like what's the core gameplay here like is there a really good shooting mechanic is there a really good stealth mechanic is there a really good melee mechanic um you know what is the core gameplay of this game and i feel like you know some of these games like something like cyberpunk it comes out and it's like well it's got everything it has driving walking shooting running and it's like cool but you know, like, you have to have some, some core mechanics and some core, like, things that the game is trying to do. And if you're just trying to do everything, I mean, of course, that's going to be inherently extremely fraught process to create a a game like that, where it's less about, like, here's the sort of core thing that we're guiding you through. And more like, just here's everything, here's a world with everything. Um, And so, you know, as the, as the game got closer to release date, it was, it was getting delayed multiple times and obviously we we're in the middle of a pandemic. So a lot of games were being delayed, but, but beyond the pandemic, I mean, it sounds like there was just a lot of the, you know, the, this game just bit off more than it could chew. And not only, I mean, not only was it biting off more than it could chew in general, but it was scheduled to come out for multiple uh, gaming platforms. And so, I don't know what happened, but you know, clearly the, from what, from what it sounds like the PlayStation four and Xbox uh, one versions of this game, the current gen versions are just very broken. It sounds like, and are completely riddled with bugs and glitches and the graphics are not looking good. And I, I, you know, I, I can see why players are frustrated with that because the, the game was always expected to come out on those consoles and those are the consoles that the majority of people currently have you, you know it's still hard to get a ps5 we're still in the middle of a giant recession so people i think are, are waiting to an extent on new consoles um so how do you not optimize this game for the current gen consoles i don't know that seems crazy i mean i think you know we're at a stage where um you know, people are are kind of, I think, accepting of the fact that some of the early PS5 and Xbox Series X games are going to be just sort of upconverted ports of the previous generation's games. Um, but the main thing for now should have been, like, get the current gen versions running well. And it's crazy because even, like, you know, I've been playing Spider-Man Miles Morales on the PS4. It runs basically great like um, I'm sure it's even way better on the PS5 but on just a base PS4 um, it runs really well and so it's it's not like it's impossible to get a really ambitious game like a cyberpunk to run well on you know a a PS4 Um, and so and, and the crazy thing is that the next gen PS5 and Xbox Series X versions are not even coming out until next year so Right now, the only versions people are playing of this very anticipated game are the current gen versions as well as PC. Sounds like if you have a really great gaming PC, you know, um, then people are getting it to run okay. But yeah, something clearly just went wrong there. And again, it speaks to like why was the game rushed out before the end of the year? You know, why didn't they put more emphasis on the current gen versions? And then just bigger picture, you know, is there just, does this go back to this inherent problem with the gaming industry, that they're just constantly pushing themselves to be bigger, more ambitious, um, and yet less focused and less polished. And I think more and more, the latter categ- the latter categories are, are more important. I mean, look at the success Nintendo has had with the Switch over the last couple of years. Um, you know, those games are essentially last generation games and from a graphics and kind of power standpoint. But, you know, a good, a great Zelda game or a great Mario game is still going to trump, um, you know, a, a game that's maybe flashier, but just less polished at the end of the day. Um, and that doesn't have those same great mechanics that Nintendo typically delivers. So You know, I I think it's interesting you look at this year and you look at a game like Hades that is really a small indie game, you know, um, it's, but it's very, it's just a really smart game. It's really brilliantly crafted. It's um, very, it's a, it's a big game. I mean, it's a game that will take you a long time to complete and to even scratch the surface of, but the mechanics of the game are extremely focused it's trying to do one thing really well and it ended up at you know on a lot of people's game of the year lists um so i i've got to think there's a happy medium between a small indie game and you know a triple a game that's just completely bloated and full of like unnecessary things and systems and a world that's so big and yet is kind of unnecessary there's got to be a happy medium there and i think you know to me the Naughty Dog games, like Uncharted, recent games like God of War, those do sort of hit the sweet spot. Although, even again, even those, I feel like are almost too long, have too many like unnecessary systems in the game. You know, how many games do we really need to get another uh, crafting system? in, for example, um, you know, do away with all that stuff. Like, just focus on the core stuff. Make games that are fun to play. Um, and have them be you know 10 12 hours worth of game time that's totally fine um you know if it's a great game then people will come back and play it again um you know you don't need to just create these massive open worlds for every game so that's sort of my rant um it'll be interesting what happens with cyberpunk it does feel like there there have been these examples of games where they've come out sort of bombed and then by like a year or two later people are going back and like oh actually this game is good now um so we'll see if that happens with cyberpunk over the next you know a couple months to a year um but you know personally for me i mean i think i was kind of looking forward to it i wasn't like i wasn't 100 percent sure what to think i mean i love like the cyberpunk aesthetic generally and and all that and you know then there's a whole other by the way i mean there's a whole other slew of issues that i won't get into since i haven't played the game yet but I know people are talking about, you know, the representation in the game and sort of the aesthetics and, you know, how it represents kind of sexuality and and trans people and things like that. Um, So, again, I'll I'll hold off on talking about that since I haven't actually played the game. But, um, you know, it sounds like there's just a lot to talk about with with Cyberpunk. Um, But we'll see what happens. Maybe at some point I'll, um, I'll, uh, you know, dive into the game but uh yeah it's a lot to think about and I, I think the video game industry is taking note of this and and hopefully um we'll see some changes in the new year but um i will uh, i have a lot to talk about in terms of my picks of the week so i'll be right back and we'll start to get into it so right back after this <laughs> All right. So um, I've been, you know, consuming a lot of pop culture in the last uh, week. Um, You know, since I've been off, I'm just trying to catch up and and watch all the new movies that uh, would be sort of in, you know, Oscar consideration, in um, best of the year consideration. And so one of the movies that people have really been talking about came out uh, this week on Netflix, and it's called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I watched this uh, the other day and really, really enjoyed it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to talk about with this one. But, um, you know, just to give um, some background, it's basically um, it's, it's adapted from a play by August Wilson, who is, you know, the celebrated playwright who, you know, has had other of his plays adapted uh, to movies. For example, Fences with Denzel Washington. And this movie, I would say, is similar. If you've seen Fences, in that it's it's almost kind of a straight up adaptation of the play. Um, it's it's mostly kind of verbatim, I believe. Um, you know, using the script of the of the play, and um, you know, it's it's done in a way that's very play like, very theatrical um it's it's uh so it's not your typical movie in some ways it is one of those movies that is clearly a stage play adaptation it has kind of longer scenes um it has long monologues it has very colorful language um and so just you know just so you know what you're getting into and um and I like that kind of stuff by the way I mean I think uh it can be really fun to see movies that have that kind of more theatrical sort of dialogue and that um you know just have a different kind of rhythm and cadence versus your typical film um i think sometimes it's it's fun to see something that's a little bit different and that doesn't adhere to kind of the normal film conventions but takes its cues more from the stage so i think that's cool um and uh, the, the movie is about um, a, a real woman who was a, a popular singer in the 1920s named Ma Rainey, and basically the whole movie takes place over kind of really like a several hour period in which she is supposed to be going into the recording studio to record uh, new songs for the record company uh, with her band and um, it's all about sort of the tensions that ensue during that recording session and, you know, how, you know, there's a lot of just things happening that sort of speak to the racism in America and sort of, um, you know, the way that America, you know, then and obviously now still, um, unfortunately, kind of can put certain African American um, you know entertainers kind of on a pedestal and treat them a certain way uh, even though they're not treating other people that way and even though um, behind sort of the adoration there still is kind of a lot of racism and um, tension kind of between the black performers and sort of the white uh, corporate executives and record company people and and all that kind of stuff so, Um, it's really interesting Um, Viola Davis plays Ma Rainey and she's fantastic she plays her sort of this sort of larger-than-life you know diva type of character Um, she's almost kind of like a grotesque figure in a way where uh, she is clearly like you know aging a little bit and she's her makeup is kind of uh, extremely gaudy and you know, she almost has that kind of like Miss Havisham <laughs> type of uh, feel to her, where she is sort of just like this. Uh, you know, she's almost this like—I don't know how to describe it—but she's a character. She's definitely a character. Um, and and you know, I think again, a lot of the um, what's interesting about the movie is that um, the record executives treat her with so much reverence and. You know kind of you know run out to get her whatever food or drink or whatever that she wants um and yet you know you can tell there's sort of a simmering tension where it's like you know behind closed doors they're they're thinking like why are we treating this woman so differently you know isn't she kind of you know they still have that racism um but they just because she makes them so much money they sort of are much more reverent of her than they would be at least outwardly to other African-Americans. And so that's a lot of the source of tension with the band members. And one of the band members is played by Chadwick Boseman. Um, and unfortunately, sadly, this is his final role. Um, he plays this character named Levy, um, who's kind of a, I believe a saxophonist, um, or no trombonist, I believe for, uh, the band. And, um, he is sort of this like he's like one of the younger people in the band a lot of the other folks are like these kind of older like very experienced sort of um you know career band type dudes and he's sort of like the younger up-and-coming guy who's in the band who has you know he still has kind of the big dreams of like forming his own band and getting a record deal and you know becoming a, a you know celebrated musician in his own right and, um, so that sort of creates a lot of tension, um, between him and, and the other band members and Ma Rainey, cause you know, all the other band members are there to just sort of get the job done, get, get paid. And Chadwick Boseman is there to sort of shake things up and impress people and make a splash and question everything. And, um, so Chadwick Boseman is, is just great in this movie. I mean, um. You know, he really puts his heart and soul into this movie. Um, It's sort of strange watching it, knowing, you know, the the health issues that he had, because he does seem kind of pretty skinny in the movie. He seems a little bit, you know, not the Chadwick Boseman that you remember from, you know, Black Panther, for example. Um, But his acting is just amazing. And, you know, there's so much... um, You know, he kind of goes all over the emotional spectrum from being, you know, excitable and funny to being uh, sad and depressed and angry at the world. And, you know, at one point he meets kind of Ma Rainey's, uh, you know, an associate of hers and just is smitten and is trying to, like, seduce her in the middle of the recording session. And he just runs the full gamut. You know, he does kind of everything in this movie. And... You know, it's just the whole the whole movie, he is kind of the heart and soul of the movie because a lot of it is about sort of how he just comes into this recording session with all these hopes and dreams and he kind of is putting himself on the line and shooting his shot and a lot of it is about how, you know, the system is just so unkind to people like him where... You know they're given these these big dreams and they're given reason to think that they can still sort of make it in america by becoming an entertainer and that's sort of the key and that's sort of the you know the excuse me uh the thing that they can do to sort of escape you know the the oppression of their normal lives and yet it's such a long shot and so many people's dreams are just stomped upon um <clears throat> that uh you know, you really kind of ride this roller coaster ride with Chadwick Boseman and his character Levy. And, um, you know, the supporting cast is just so good where, um, you've got people like Coleman Domingo playing this, um, this character Cutler, who's sort of the more experienced, like wizened, uh, band member. And, uh, you know, it's just like a murderer's row of just great supporting actors who are who are in the movie and their interactions and their conversations are so good. And then, of course, Viola Davis is uh, phenomenal in the movie, playing this kind of more larger than life character. But she also has these moments where she's sort of away from the, you know, from the spotlight and just has these very, like, grounded moments where she's very sober about um you know, what's really going on and the racism that still she encounters um, and is subject to. And it's, it's a really good movie. I mean, I think, you know, it like I said, it is sort of that stage play type of feel. And so I think it's always a challenge with that kind of movie of like, how do you direct it in such a way where you are taking advantage of the fact that it's a film and you don't feel like you're just watching a film performance of a play? Um, I think the direction could be, could have been maybe a little more dynamic, um, to sort of shake things up a bit. Maybe there could have been a little bit more, um, you know, flair, I guess, given to some of the direction to sort of, um, spice it up a little bit and, uh, just, you know, make it a little more, I think there are some moments where there are some lulls where some scenes that do just feel a little bit long. Um, and I know that's the nature of the play, but. Uh, I think for the the film medium, maybe they could have shook it up a little bit. Um, But I think the performances are so strong that at the end of the day, it's just a really powerful movie. uh, Very entertaining, very thought-provoking. And there's just a lot to cue on in this one. So if you're looking for a great movie, if you want to see Chadwick Boseman's final performance, highly recommend Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Undoubtedly, we'll be getting some Oscar nominations, certainly a posthumous, uh, you know, Oscar nomination for for Chadwick Boseman, Viola Davis, I've got to imagine as well, we'll get one. Um, but yeah, it's a really strong movie. Um, Netflix has definitely stepped it up, I would say. I, I, I think in past years, they've had really strong slates of movies. Um but this year, you know, they've just had a very well-rounded slate of great movies. And this might be sort of the cherry on top for them. So check it out. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's on Netflix. And I'll be right back with my next. All right. So, you know, normally I uh, talk about movies or TV shows or whatever on here that I just can 100% endorse, and I really want to use this podcast as a way to shout out things that I am uh, really enjoying uh, and want to give a particular shout out to, um, but I did want to talk about one movie this week that I'm, I, you know, kind of have mixed feelings about. I'm not sure exactly what to think, but I did just want to give some quick thoughts on Tenant, which uh, finally came out uh, this past week, uh, to rent, uh, or to buy on, on Blu-ray. Um, and so I was finally able to watch it. I feel like I've been waiting for this movie forever. Um, I obviously was anticipating it, you know, last year. Um, I remember seeing the IMAX preview for it in theaters, I think before like birds of prey or something like that earlier this year. Um, You know, nobody knew when it was going to come out. You know, was it going to be the movie that brought us back to theaters? That turned out not to be the case. But I finally got my Blu-ray. I, uh, you know, eagerly gave it a watch. And, yeah, it is interesting. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan. Memento, I still remember seeing that in the theaters when I was in college, kind of right around the time I was just really becoming more of a, you know, hardcore film fan. And that was one of those movies that just blew me away and sort of opened my mind to more of the world of like indie movies and sort of left of center movies. And uh, Memento still, I actually rewatched it this past weekend And man, still a masterpiece. um, Still just one of my favorite movies ever. And that sort of is the template, I think, for almost every Christopher Nolan movie to follow, um, which are these sort of puzzle box movies that have just very big ideas about, you know, identity and memory and time and, you know, the nature of time and our nature to control reality and shape reality for ourselves. And you know, I love those big themes. I mean, in my own writing, it's the same kind of themes that I'm attracted to writing about um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think Nolan, he's had some movies that I've liked more than others. But by and large, um, you know, I've remained a huge fan of his. Um, I always look forward to his films. Obviously, in ideal times, his movies are ones that you want to see on a big screen and IMAX. Um you know, they tend to be just audiovisual, you know, uh, epics, really. (laughs) Um, And and Tenon clearly has that going for it. I mean, even just watching it at home, it has that, you know, typical Christopher Nolan feeling of being big and uh, epic and just, you know, widescreen and there are certain moments and scenes in the movie that are just breathtaking in terms of the intensity that they have and the energy that they have. And nobody does that. Like Christopher Nolan, like he just has this way of shooting action and not even just action, but sort of the way he cuts from moment to moment and sort of establishes these big, you know, just epic visuals. Um, you know, no one else can really match that that's working today, I think. And he just has this, like, thunderous um, momentum in his movies that, you know, just keeps you on the edge of your seat and keeps you sort of supercharged throughout the whole movie. Um, and Tenet definitely has that. I mean, um, it just comes at you 100 miles per hour and doesn't let up the really the whole movie. Um, so from that perspective, it's it's vintage Christopher Nolan. Um, and whatever else I would say about the movie, I would say it's worth watching just because it does deliver that unique level of Christopher Nolan, like just awe and wonder and intensity that is unique to him and something he does better than anybody else. Um, so before I say anything else, I would say I do recommend watching this movie. It is an experience. It's an epic experience. So, I think, you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad I watched it and I was excited to watch it. Now, what I will say is, you know, Nolan has done a bunch of movies that are, are sort of these kind of puzzle box type of plot lines. You know, Inception probably being the one that people always go back to where it just has layers of meaning and layers of plot and sort of these, you know... Um, Very big sci-fi premises that um, you know take a lot of decoding to kind of fully, fully get. And there's a lot of sort of conversation starter, and there's a lot of twists, and there's a lot of kind of puzzle mystery aspect to the premise. And Nolan's often really good at that. I mean, Memento is a great example, Inception is a great example, and I think what works so well about those movies is that, you know, you can sort of go online or talk with your friends after seeing them and you can debate all the fine points of the plot and you can sort of debate what certain moments really meant or how they interwove together. But at the end of the day with something like Memento, the basic concept is pretty easy to understand. And works really really well and really clearly in the movie and even inception i would say is similar where you know you you may not get every little detail and you can debate a lot of those details but the basic concept you can distill pretty easily into a couple sentences and it basically works and makes sense and there's nothing glaring that kind of tears it apart and puts you know pokes a hole in it Now, with Tenant, it's a little bit different. Um, The basic concept is relatively easy to understand, but the application of that concept throughout the movie often just inherently makes not a lot of sense. And there's just a lot in the movie that is very hard to follow, very confusing. Um, And part of the problem is that Really, all you have to go on in the movie is the plot because the characters are very thin and have very little motivation throughout the movie to the point where John David Washington's character is literally named protagonist and you know basically nothing about him for most of the movie. And so, you know, you think back to movies like Memento and, you know, there was a very clear motivation for Leonard. He was trying to figure out who killed his wife and that drove everything that happened similarly in inception and and you know i know this has been kind of a thing that people have sort of you know poked at uh, nolan for is the fact that he does go to this well a lot of guys seeking sort of meaning or revenge after his wife's murder um but nolan to his credit does that kind of plot really well and he he's been really good in the past at using those sort of personal motivations to to inform the plots of his movie and to make you really invested in the plot beyond just, oh, here's kind of uncovering like the mathematical equation that's driving this plot. In Tenet, you really only have that mathematical equation. And the mathematical equation doesn't really make sense. And someone even says at the beginning of the movie, like, don't try and understand it But it's like, dude, the entire reason for existence for this movie seems to be that you want me to try to understand what's going on here um, because I don't have much else to go on in terms of character or motivations or anything. So I feel like this movie kind of unravels a little bit. It feels a little bit self-indulgent in that clearly there was just some like visual Conceits that Nolan was very interested in exploring—you know, a bullet firing backwards, a car driving backwards down the freeway—you know, this whole concept of inversion and what that means—and he's clearly is having a blast giving us those visual moments: these backwards bullets, these you know, fighting in reverse, and things like that. And those are really cool moments in the movie, but there's very little behind those moments. There's very little driving it. And there's a lot of these very, like, tiny little hints and things that maybe you can decode. And I'm sure some people will be going on Reddit and, you know, decoding every inch of this movie and trying to find, like, a whole hidden movie that's between the lines of what's in the text. And sometimes that can be fun, but I think you still need the text to have the subtext, you know? I think there's very little text in this movie. And so the people that are trying to find, like, the movie within the movie are just kind of really going to end up grasping at straws because there's so little to actually go on in the film. And it doesn't really add up to much. Like, you know, the revelations at the end of the movie about that give you a little bit more about what's really going on, you know, to me, it was kind of like, okay, interesting. You know, could have probably guessed some of that, but there's really no character behind it. So it's like, it just becomes a... It becomes like a mathematical equation of like, oh, I see. That's what was really happening. But why should I care? Because I don't know anything about this character. Um, and, you know, it is a shame because, I mean, John David Washington, we know, is a great actor. He's good in the movie. He's very charismatic. Robert saying I would say, is actually great in the movie in that, again, like with his character, you have very, very little to go on. But you can feel him trying his hardest to like give us these little moments and these little gestures and facial expressions that sort of add to the character. And you can tell that Robert Pattinson has done his damnedest to sort of like create his own like inner life for this character. And I'm sure somewhere in his head, he has worked out all the motivations and all the backstory of this character, which comes through in his acting for sure. The problem is we don't know any of that when we're watching the movie. So it it feels very thin and hollow in a lot of ways, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I would recommend, uh, I would recommend watching it because I think it's an entertaining movie. And, you know, again, it has like just cool moments and it has things that are discussion starters, I guess. But I think ultimately, uh, this is probably one of the weaker Nolan movies. And, um, it just feels like it—it it sort of indulges a lot of random things that he thought would be cool um, and wanted to shoot, but uh, it doesn't really do much from a plot or character perspective. It doesn't leave us much with much to really cue on, uh, other than just like the formula of what was happening in the movie, which is only going to be so interesting. Um, so, you know, you do have to have you have to have something in a movie like this that that gives us a little more to go on. Um so yeah, I mean it'll be interesting. I think it certainly this is a movie that if it had come out in theaters and you saw it in IMAX 3D, you would probably your immediate reaction would be a little bit more wow, because just the power of the visuals. And then it's probably the kind of movie that on the car ride home, you'd be like, but hmm, I'm wondering, like, was it really that amazing? And so um, when you watch it at home, I think you lose a little of that initial just wow factor. And you sort of go right to the, OK, I'm going to pause that and rewind it and see if that actually made sense. Um, or was what they were saying there actually, you know, part of the puzzle or was it a random aside or whatever? And so when you watch it more that way, I mean, I think you can more immediately see some of the hollowness there. Um so that's my thought on it. Um, but you know, we'll see. I mean, Nolan always going to be excited for whatever he does. So, uh, we'll see whatever, hopefully he has something cool in the works for his next movie. And, uh, you know, uh, still has certain, certain, uh, a particular set of skills, if you will, that not many possess. So I'm excited to see what he's got up his sleeve next. And, uh, This is definitely still a very interesting movie to talk about. So I'll be right back with my next pick. All right. So I want to talk about another uh, movie that sort of was uh, a long time coming for me to watch, I guess. Um, This was a movie, uh, Mulan, that, you know, was kind of right at the cusp of being released in theaters when the pandemic hit. And it eventually went to Disney Plus as at sort of an added premium price, um, and then eventually, just a couple of weeks ago, it went. Uh, it became free on Disney Plus to subscribers. So, you know, there's a whole sort of um, business conversation we could have about you know what this movie sort of did for the industry, and I think you know it, my sense is that it, it's a movie that. You know, because perhaps it did not do as well at the premium price point, it may have influenced Disney and others to not do premium price points for movies in the future and to just include them with their streaming services. So very interesting from that perspective. But I will say I finally watched Mulan now that it's free on Disney Plus. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe it kind of hit me at the right time because I've been watching a lot of more indie movies recently and I just felt kind of in the mood for like a big action packed fun movie. Um, but I really like this movie. Um, you know, and I know, you know, I, I know that, um, there is a lot of controversy around, you know, for example, where the movie was, was shot. And, you know, there was some concern that, um, the way it was shot sort of, um, you know, was was beneficial to China in a way that encouraged some of the, you know, some of the really bad human rights violations that they have over there. And to be honest, I need to read up a little bit more on it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much about it um, without being a little bit more informed. I think now that I saw it and I was talking about the movie with some people recently, you know, they kind of reminded me of that controversy. So. Um, you know, I'll put that to the side for a moment. And I will say that again, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought it really worked. And I was, um, I I don't know, I guess depending on what you're expecting from this movie, you might have different reactions. I actually had never seen the original animated movie until pretty recently. Uh, I never saw it as a kid or, or teenager or whatever. Um, and, um, I watched it a couple months ago and I really liked it. I thought it was one of the better Disney animated movies that, that I've seen. Um, And and to me, I sort of put it in the same tier as, you know, some of the classics that I grew up with, like Lion King or, you know, beauty and the beast, Um, you know, maybe not quite as good as those, but I, I was impressed. I think I went in thinking it would be like nowhere near as good. And it ended up being like really good. Um, And that being said, you know, my expectation for the live action one was I think I was more excited for it than I was for things like Beauty and the Beast or The Lion King because, you know, to me, Disney doing these like just literal remakes of their animated movies down to the like goofy sidekick characters and down to all the music and everything is just kind of pointless. Like. If it's the exact same movie, but just with a slightly different visual aesthetic, then really to me, it's like, what is the point? Um, Just totally kind of redundant and unnecessary. Um, Mulan felt like, you know, there was clearly potential there to take the sort of Disney animated formula and turn it into a more epic, more serious live action drama um, with some really cool action to boot. And I feel like that's what they did here. Um, So I feel like they really did a nice job of updating the movie, um, and they did turn it into a movie that reminded me of sort of like, you know, the Zhang Yimou movies, like Hero and stuff like that. It had that, you know, Wuxia, uh, Kung Fu type of action, which I have been, you know, I love that stuff. I, you know, I, ever since I first saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I think like a lot of people... I became sort of obsessed with that style of, of action. And, uh, you know, they did a good job with it in this movie. Like maybe again, maybe it's because there's been a drought of those sorts of movies recently that I've seen at least. And I thought the action in this was pretty awesome in parts. Um, some really cool fight scenes, some really cool battle scenes. Um, I thought that, um, It had just a really epic feeling, and the director Nikki um, Caro—sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right, Nikki Caro—maybe just did a a great job. I mean, I you know sometimes uh, you see kind of a newer, or you know you see a, a person directing a big action movie like this who hasn't done a lot of big action before, and you're like, I don't know, maybe they should stick to you know indie movies. In this case, I'm like, give her all the big action movies. She really nailed it, in my opinion. Um, you know, the action was awesome. Uh, aside from even that, there was a lot of really amazing sort of scenes of the, of the Chinese landscape and the desert and the villages and everything. Just everything looked awesome in this movie. Um, and so I really appreciated the visuals of it. Um, again, just not having watched a ton of like big new blockbusters recently, maybe that sort of influenced me, but I was just really blown away by the, by the look of this movie. Um, and I thought it was fun. I mean, the acting was good. Um, it had like so many great stars in it, you know, um, Donnie Yen and, and Jet Li and, and the main, uh, woman, um, again, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, efe I, Lu, um, who played Mulan, she was great, had a lot of presence. Um, you know, really kind of sold the part, and um, I, I liked a lot of um, the way that they updated it. With you know, it was it, it did away with like the the Disney sidekick animals and everything, and yet it wasn't like deadly serious. You know, there was this element of magic, and again, like the Wuxia kung fu that's very over the top in it. Um, so I liked that transition. Like I liked that it sort of went from Disney animated genre to sort of um, kung fu movie genre, which uh, it's hard to complain about. Um, and it had that, again, like very Zhang Yimu type of feel to it, which, uh, again, like, I love that stuff. So really worked for me. Um, and again, I thought they told like a, just a good story that, um, I mean, obviously this is a story we've seen in the animated original, uh, we've seen it in other movies of sort of the woman kind of posing as a man. Um, but it did a good job with it. And it sort of, um, it, it sort of, uh, had modern sensibilities, but still felt very true to kind of the mythology and the era that it was, it was depicting. So, um, you know, it it felt like a good balance of feeling like it was of, you know, it was telling a story of a certain time and place um, while also kind of feeling like it reflected back on the era that we're living in today, which I thought was cool. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, just really epic action, um strong acting just a lot of like good moments like i feel like this was the first movie in a while where um again i guess i've been watching a lot of smaller movies recently but i just had those moments where i was like pumping my fist and you know just really kind of giddy from those big like applause worthy type of moments um so yeah i enjoyed it a lot um i don't know i guess maybe there's like mixed reaction but I don't want to see, like, I don't want to see a lot of just these Disney remakes. I feel like they're, like I said, kind of redundant. And just, I'd much rather see, like, original properties and original new stories. Um, But to me, this was an exception. This was kind of a worthy, a worthy remake. And uh, I I liked it a lot. So I do recommend Mulan. Um and uh yeah, that's what I've got to say about Mulan, and I'll be right back with my next so I did want to give uh, a, a quick shout out to one more movie um that I watched this week called Lovers Rock, which you may have seen, uh you know, it's been getting a lot of acclaim. Uh President Obama even included it um on his favorite movies of the year list. And this, uh, I should preface, it is not a typical movie in that it's part of this series that I've talked a little bit about before on the podcast called Small Acts. Um, It's on Amazon Prime, and it's from uh, the director, Steve McQueen. And basically, uh, to to remind you guys, um, basically, Steve McQueen, he decided to do this series of five uh thematically connected movies that fall under this umbrella called small acts they're all about sort of the west indian um black community in uh london um in you know sort of the 70s 80s um uh, kind of that general period um but they each take place in like a slightly different time period Um, but they're all about kind of this similar community and like different stories within that community So previously I talked about, uh, red, white, and blue, uh, that starred John, John Boyega. Um, but this feels like lovers rock. It feels like the other of the, of the small acts movies that people have been really talking about and, and giving a claim to. So I wanted to check it out. I'm going to try at some point to watch all of the small acts movies. So I I do want to watch the other three at some point, but I wanted to watch this one and I did really like it. Um, So this one is different than a lot of the other films because it's sort of, it almost is like an interlude where it's uh, all about this party that's taking place, a house party in this community. And, you know, it's sort of, um, it's sort of like this day in the life type of thing where you know, these two kind of younger women, they decide to get dressed up and go to this party and they sort of sneak out at night um, from their families to go to this big party. And people from all over the community have, are, are doing the same. They're all going to this house where there's going to be music and food and the opportunity to meet, you know, uh, girls and guys. And, um, you know, it, kind of the, the subtext of the whole thing is that, you know, these people live, um, rough lives. You know, a lot of them don't have a lot of money. Um, they get mistreated. There's a lot of racism they're dealing with. Um, they're not allowed into some of the clubs and and bars that, that white people would be allowed into, or if they are, they're not welcome there per se. Um, and so this is sort of their escape and their haven. And because they don't have like an official venue to go to, you know, they go to these house parties, um, which are sort of like the unofficial gathering spots. And they have like a DJ set up and, you know, they have a a doorman. And so it's sort of like a pretty big deal, um, even though it's just at like some random house in the neighborhood. And so that's kind of the backdrop. And then once there's that sort of initial setup, then the majority of the movie just takes place at this party. And what's really brilliant um, about what the director, Steve McQueen, does is – he really just makes you feel like you're at this party. And so he lets certain moments just go on and not cut away from them. Like, you know, you almost feel like you're just on the dance floor with these people and you're kind of just waiting to see what the next song is. And, you know, you it, it, it's that feeling that you're at a party and you're just sort of like, all right, who's in this corner, you know, who's, what's going on over here, you know, who's kind of hanging out outside uh, smoking or whatever you know, what's the DJ up to, what kind of people, what kind of sort of uh, couples are, are happening or people are pairing off with each other. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of like very joyous scenes of like a certain song will come on and everyone will get excited and this impromptu just, you know, big dance party will, will happen and people will just get really into it and passionate about it and just be feeling the music. And especially, you know, in these quarantine times, Um, I mean, I'm never, I've never been like the biggest party goer or anything, but you know, you watch this and you do get this sense of nostalgia of like, man, there, you know, it kind of reminds you of the power of being gathered with a lot of people and, and that spontaneity of like, what's going to happen and, and who's going to be there and all that. Um, and you know, there is a lot of joy in the movie, but there's also a lot of sort of menace where it's just like any party that you go to, um, especially if you think back to like when you were younger and in college or whatever, and you know, there's some bad actors at the party. There's like some dudes who are way too aggressive with the women. Um, there's some people who have had too much to drink or too many drugs or, uh, whatever it may be, who are kind of acting out and need to be like booted from the party. And, um, you know there's a lot of interesting little subplots happening uh I will say I had to watch this with subtitles cuz there's some pretty thick like sort of west indian or jamaican accents in the movie so uh combined with like english accents so once i put the subtitles on it was a little easier to follow um there's a lot of characters there's a lot of like little moments that are you know blink and you miss them type of stuff but it was just a really cool like very immersive movie and again while most of the movie was at this party, there is sort of these, you know, there's like a intro and an epilogue that um, do just give this additional context of contrasting the world of this party where like anything can happen. And, you know, there's like all these possibilities. You could meet someone, you could, you know, anything could happen at this party. And then it sort of contrasts that with the, you know, oppressiveness and the injustices and the indignities of these people's regular lives, and um, you know, it was it, it was super well done in that way. And so, I think without those prologue, that prologue and epilogue, it would have not been as effective. But those really put an effective sort of um, you know bookends on, on the movie and make it into something more than it could have been otherwise. So, I really enjoyed *Lovers Rock*. I think Steve McQueen is an amazing amazing director um, who just has this ability in a lot of his stuff. It's hard to describe, but I feel like he has a very, very realistic, like you are there style that also somehow is very dreamlike and um, can be either like dreamlike or nightmare like. Um, And it somehow blends those two things in a way that I don't know if I've ever seen anyone else do. Um, And, just a great director and he's so skilled and to make five movies like this uh, in such a short time it's truly uh, a great feat so it's interesting I think these movies are being submitted for Emmy consideration rather than Oscar but I think a lot of people including uh, you know President Obama are including them on their movies list because they are movies they are really movies more than, more than TV episodes so um, lovers rock for sure check it out I liked it a lot and uh i'll be back with just another one more uh pick right after this all right so for my final pick of this week um i did want to get a little bit more nerdy talk about a comic book um this will be a little bit of a d- of a deeper dive so um You know, feel free to tune out now if you're not of the uh, nerdy persuasion, but hopefully this will be interesting for anyone. So DC Comics um, is going through a really interesting time right now. They just had a big editorial changeover. Um, Basically, in January, all their comics, all their main comics are sort of pausing for a few months, and they're going to have this big event called Future State that shows you all the DC Comics heroes in the course of, you know, decades from now. And, you know, there's going to be new, a new Superman, a new Batman. You know, all these new characters are going to be, you know, taking up the mantles of their predecessors. And there's going to be this whole like big interconnected storyline about what happens in the DC Universe decades from now. Then after that, it's going to sort of go back to the present day. And you're going to start to see all these um, elements from the future state storyline sort of trickle down into the main present day storylines, and I think it's kind of cool. I'm excited to see where it goes. I think what's cool is there's a lot of like new writers, new artists that are going to be handling some of the big characters. So I feel like DC for a while now has had the very like a very small stable of writers that have been doing all their big comics, and so I'm definitely excited as a fan to just see like some new blood come in and give some new, you know, updates to the characters and just freshen things up a little bit. Um, so that being said, the big event that's sort of leading into all of this, that's sort of like the final hurrah for the current DC universe before it gets this kind of paint new paint job, I guess, is called uh, death metal. And um, it's sort of the sequel to an event called dark nights metal that took place a few years ago was sort of the brainchild of the writer, Scott Snyder, um, and the artist, uh, Greg Capullo. Um, and, and that story sort of saw the, um, introduction of what was called the dark multiverse where basically, um, you know, DC has always had this multiverse of infinite earths and, you know, you probably have heard of like crisis on infinite earths and all that, um, and so Snyder introduced a dark multiverse that was like a whole other multiverse with like very dark, evil, twisted versions of all the of all the worlds. And the main villain to emerged from this universe was called the Batman Who Laughs, who was this evil version of Batman who had um, kind of combined the traits of Batman and the Joker, and he was sort of this hybrid of like the Joker and Batman, and was just incredibly evil and uh, was psychotic and was taking over you know the entire multiverse one world at a time and he had he has this like army of evil robins um who just go around and they're sort of these like demon robins who just go around with him and he's super sinister looking he's super like like the whole idea was to evoke like heavy metal music and that sort of imagery in the story um and now a couple years later there's a sequel called death metal and, um, you know, it's, again, this kind of big universe-spanning um, war between the multiverse and the dark multiverse. And I think the idea is that by the end of it, you know, it will lead to sort of this, um, you know, restart for the DC universe where, you know, now Future State will come into play and, uh, and it'll set the stage for, for everything after that. So, all that being said, there's kind of the main death metal series that's going on by Scott Snyder. And then there have been a bunch of, you know, as they do with these big comic book events, there's all these kind of tie-ins that happen uh, alongside of it. And, you know, sometimes those tie-ins are kind of extraneous and, you know, not really worth it. And they're just kind of milking you for for a couple extra bucks. But sometimes what happens is these tie-ins tend to actually be the best parts of the series because they allow for kind of these side stories and different takes on the events that you know maybe you're not getting in the main series and that is definitely the case with death metal i would say where the main series is like pretty good you know it's entertaining it's just like this big action-packed blockbustery kind of craziness but some of the side stories have been really really good and one of those side stories that came out this week is a is a one-off uh comic book special called death metal the secret origin and, it's, and what's notable is it's written by Jeff Johns, who, you know, was the former kind of head of DC Comics, of DC Entertainment. Um, you know, he's a very acclaimed writer who um, very quickly over the last, you know, 20 years or so went from kind of new kid on the block to superstar writer to powerhouse, you know, executive of DC Entertainment, you know, writing movie scripts and producing movies and TV shows And because of all of that, his actual comic book work has been somewhat limited over the last few years. And so it was kind of interesting, like, oh, wait, Jeff Johns is writing, like, this random, you know, one-off special that ties into this other death metal event? Like, that seems a little weird. You know, why would he kind of do that? And, um, you know, I think what, what is apparent when you read it is that, he wanted to sort of use the opportunity to finish a story that he started a long time ago when he did a big event back probably, I think it's been like 15 years now, um, called Infinite Crisis. That was his stab at doing just this big, world-shaking DC Comics event that sort of reset a lot of stuff and you know was in that tradition of crisis events that DC has going back to you know, the big one, which was Crisis on Infinite Earth that everyone always talks about. So, in that Infinite Crisis event, the main villain was a character called Superboy Prime. And basically, you know, this was a character that was introduced decades ago, it's um, sort of a, a lark almost, where he was a character from Earth Prime, which is basically supposed to be our world, our real world. And he was a guy who just grew up loving Superman. He lived in a normal world with no superheroes. He read comic books and um, he idolized Superman. And so in the crisis on infinite earth, he sort of got pulled into this giant cosmic war and our world, the real world earth prime got wrapped up in this crisis on infinite earth. And suddenly He had powers, and he was a superhero and a version of Superman or Superboy um, that was fighting alongside the heroes he grew up reading about in comic books. Um, But in Infinite Crisis, Jeff Johns reimagined him as someone who then had become disillusioned with everything he saw happening in the comics, and he sort of used him as a way to comment on the state of the comics industry at the time, where a lot of characters had been getting darker and the story is more adult and arguably had lost sight of some of the sense of wonder and optimism that had defined DC Comics for so long. And so Superboy Prime became this villain who was disillusioned with the state of things and was trying to change all of reality back to a version that that was more to his liking. And so you know, there was still sort of this untold story, I guess, that Jeff Johns wanted to tell with Superboy Prime. And so in this one shot of Death Metal, The Secret Origin, he sort of tells this story of how Superboy Prime, who's now, you know, he hasn't really popped up a lot in recent DC comics. He's mostly just popped up in appearances by Jeff Johns here and there. And Jeff Johns brings him back for this sort of epilogue and this ending to his story Where, um, you know, he's kind of on the battlefield of this big death metal event and he's kind of just watching it from the sidelines and he just doesn't care anymore. He just knows from his experience that if heroes die, they might come back. You know, it's all cyclical and he almost speaks from the perspective of like a jaded comic book fan who has read all these events and is like, yeah, what does this even matter? It's all just going to go back to how it was anyways. And John's just brilliantly sort of takes that kind of character with that kind of jaded perspective, and he gives him this final hurrah where he sort of is convinced, and I won't spoil how, to sort of see the light and be optimistic and believe in something and have this one final battle where he fights for the good guys. and. It's really good. It's like, I don't want to spoil anything, but I mean, this is one of those classic Jeff Johns stories where if you know his work from, you know, other comics or from TV shows like Stargirl, you know, he really can do these emotional beats in a way that a lot of people in comics cannot. And he gives this big grand ending for Superboy Prime that will bring a tear to your eye. I mean, It's just so well done. It's so impeccably crafted. And it's such a wonderful ending to this character's story. Um, And it's a rare thing in comics because I feel like a lot of times these characters get introduced by a certain writer. They sort of have their moment. And then they just get forgotten about. And it's rare that a creator gets to come in and do sort of like a final story for for a character they created. And so Johns gets that opportunity here, and it's just a great story. It's just a classic. And even if you haven't really been reading Death Metal or any of the other stories around it, if you remember reading Infinite Crisis and remember like Superboy Prime being this big villain, you should definitely check this one out because it's just a great ending for the character and just a classic. It's one of the best like big DC Comics stories I've read in a long time. So... Check it out Um, and yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's one of my favorite like mainline DC comics I've read in a long time. It makes me wish we got more from Jeff Johns and that he just would do more DC comics, but we'll see what happens. Um, But yeah, it's just a really good, a really good story. It was, it it definitely brought out like my inner just DC comics nerd and, and I really enjoyed it a lot. So on that note, I know that was a lot. Um, That's all I've got for this week. Hope everyone again has a happy holiday. And I will be back next week with some end of the year best of lists, which I'm excited for. It'll be my first end of the year uh, podcast. So stay tuned for that. And until then, have a great holiday, everyone.